When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. When Saturn and Jupiter met, in the night sky last winter solstice at zero degrees of Aquarius. According to New Agers, astrologers, and some occultists, this signaled the full entry into the age of Aquarius, and the constellation Aquarius is ruled by Saturn. Astrologers call this the great mutation, and this great mutation signals a transformation to a new era where power is decentralized and we are much less materialistic. And it was one month to the day after that uh, conjunction, the World Economic Forum announced its official plans for the Great Reset. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast at my strange planet shop you'll find unique men's women's unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts leggings tote bags mugs neck gaiters and stickers and more all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my strange planet shop by artist illustrator rick forgus if you're a fan of strange planet why not show it off go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or Go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. The ancient Roman god Saturn has gone by many names, including Kronos, El, and Lel, and Molech. And the sons of Saturn were worshipped by the warrior cult of Philistine giants of David's day from the Old Testament. In his latest groundbreaking book, The Second Coming of Saturn, Derek reveals how powerful people 
believe the stars have aligned to bring back the old god Saturn. The uh, occult symbols embedded in the United States Capitol that points to the return of Saturn's reign and why Lucifer is Saturn, not Satan. Evidence that Saturn was the leader of the rebellious sons of God. And uh, we'll discuss who is Satan, actually. Or rather, who is Saturn, actually. A new age began December 20th, 2020, called the Great Conjunction, a meeting in the sky of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, which heralds the beginning of the Age of Aquarius, a new golden age, perhaps, to be ruled by Saturn. Derek P. Gilbert hosts the news analysis program 5 to 10 for Skywatch TV and co-hosts the weekly video program Sci-Fi and Unraveling Revelation with his wife, author, and analyst, Sharon K. Gilbert. Derek is the author of the groundbreaking books A Bad Moon Rising, The Great Inception, and Last Clash of the Titans, among others, and his latest is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and The Return of the Watchers. Derek, how are you? Welcome back. Thank you, Richard. It's always an honor to be here. The Roman god Saturn, as you point out, goes by many names. Molech and Enlil and El and Kronos. But how did you determine that all of these different names actually are referring to the same entity, Saturn? This really grew out of the research that Sharon and I have been doing over the last couple of years for our previous books, Giants, Gods and Dragons, Veneration, even Last Clash of the Titans. It's no secret that uh, Kronos of the Greeks and Saturn of the Romans are the same entity, and the classical historians, the Romans and Greeks of the first few centuries of the Christian era, knew that the Phoenician god Baal Haman was just Kronos and Saturn by a different name, and they equated him also with El of the Canaanites. So after getting through our last project, I thought, okay, well, we've got this great conjunction coming up on the winter solstice of 2020, a date that, of course, has significance in the uh, the occult realm, where Jupiter and Saturn met in the sky at zero degrees of the constellation Aquarius. I thought, okay, I've got all of this other research that I've sort of been collecting while researching other stuff connected to uh, the ancient religions of Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean world. So decided to try to piece it together. And when you start following those lines of research, it's pretty clear that even the people of the ancient world, through multilingual god lists, essentially uh, the equivalent of Google Translate from the, like the 3rd century BC or whatever, would equate the god Dagon, for example, of the Amorites, with El of the Canaanites and with Enlil of the Akkadians and Sumerians. And then likewise, they would equate Enlil with Kumarbi of the ancient Hurrians and Kumarbi with Dagon. So when you start piecing it all together, it's clear that this entity, going by different names, occupied the same slot in the pantheons of all of these different cultures. He was the god who took over from the sky god, sometimes by force. In several of the myths, he castrated the sky god in the process, and then was later deposed, overthrown, sometimes violently, and then confined to the netherworld. This pattern repeats, and uh, we trace this back uh, through human history, going back more than 5,000 years. Ah, 5,000. Okay, so I mentioned off the top that you um, discuss how Saturn was worshipped by the Philistine giants. So Goliath and his tribe, let's say, 
they were a Saturn worshipping cult. What did that entail exactly, the Saturn worshipping cult? Okay, well, not under the name Saturn, of course, but the Philistines, when David and his men went out to do battle with the Philistines, we see this in, the, in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel, when David and his men go out to confront the giants, there are a couple of them who are named and are described as descendants of the giant, descendants of the giant. And this is where we start getting into Hebrew and where it gets difficult for me because I don't speak or interpret Hebrew, but using the work of those who do and trying to piece this together, you find that the word descendant in the Hebrew is not ben, which means son of, it's uh, yeladeh, which is better translated as uh, one who was born in the house of someone, like a servant, or one who is initiated into a group. And a scholar by the name of Conrad LaRue argued some years ago that these giants who were described as descendants of Rapha, or descendants of the Rapha, which is a singular form of Rephaim, the giants that the Bible connects to the Nephilim of the pre-flood era, were more accurately described not as literal blood descendants of, but a, a warrior cult who venerated the spirits of what they believed were their mighty kings of long ago, the Rephaim. Now, since in the book, and in our previous book, Veneration, Sharon and I showed how the Rephaim were the demon spirits that proceeded from the bodies of the Nephilim, the giants destroyed in the flood, which giants were created by the rebellion of the sons of God, mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, I put this together and suggest that this entity, who was described as the king of the Titans, Saturn of the Romans, Kronos of the Greeks, and like his other iterations, like uh, Enlil and El and Dagon and Molech, all had netherworld connections, underworld connections, that this entity was the most likely candidate for the leader of this rebellion named in the book of First Enoch, Shemiyaza, who is described as the chief of the Watchers. And we know that these entities are in the abyss, in Tartarus, in fact, because in Second Peter 2, verse 4, he mentions the angels who uh, God did not spare when they sinned, but cast them into hell, except the Greek word behind the English word hell there is Tartarosis, Tartarus, which is not the same place as Hades. Hades is where the run-of-the-mill human dead were confined. Tartarus was a special place in the underworld to imprison rebellious uh, supernatural entities. Right, this is like a maximum security prison. (laughs) Exactly, right. Threats to the divine order of things. That's where you put the rebel angels. So these rebellious angels or sons of God from Genesis 6, I equate with the titans of Greek uh, and Roman mythology, Shemiyaza, chief of the watchers, equated with Saturn, Kronos, or Dagon, who would have been the chief god of the Philistines, the creator of the spirits, the demons worshipped by Goliath and his colleagues. So Saturn is Shemirazai? Yes. Yes. In my my view, I think that uh, equation holds up. All right. We mentioned the Philistines, but it goes back further, right? You take the worship of Satan back further to the Urkesh in northern Mesopotamia? Right, right. Urkesh is a site that was excavated between 1984 and 2011 by a husband and wife team of archaeologists at the UCLA. Their research is really phenomenal because this city was the oldest known city founded by a group of people called the Hurrians. The Hurrians. They're mentioned in the Bible as the Horites. They were developing urban civilization in northern Mesopotamia at the same time the Sumerians were developing their civilization in the south. 
And the most striking find at this city of Urkesh, which is in northeastern Syria, almost a literal stone's throw from the border with Turkey, was a temple dated to the middle of the, it's about 3500 BC, dedicated to this chief god, Kumarbi. Kumarbi is just another identity worn by Kronos, Saturn, etc., etc., etc. Back about 1940, texts were found in what is now Turkey that described how Kumarbi became the king of the gods and then was overthrown by his son. And when scholars translated those texts from the uh, uh, the Hurrian language, they discovered, hey, wait a minute, this sounds exactly like the story of Kronos and the Titans being overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians, except that it's much older. Again, that Hurrian city established about 3500 BC, and because of certain type of pottery that uh, is very unique, the Bouchelades, the archaeologists from UCLA, were able to trace this culture back to about a thousand years earlier, to about 4500 BC, in the Ararat Plain, which just happens to be the, the lowlands below the mountains where Noah's Ark is supposed to have come to rest. Ah, all right. And what is the connection between Saturn and the word abyss? Saturn was confined to Tartarus by Jupiter, just as Kronos was confined to Tartarus by Zeus. Same story, just different names by different cultures. This worship of the old god Kumarbi, who I argue in the book is the uh, probably the oldest historical reference to this entity, other than Shemiyaza in the Book of Enoch, the worship of Kumarbi at Urkesh involved the use of something called the Abi. A-B-I, that was a, a ritual pit that the Bucciolatis were able to excavate down to a depth of about 22 feet, but they only got about halfway down because of the they were concerned about the structural integrity of the pit collapsing on the workers. But here's the thing, the, the Hurrian culture was around for thousands of years, a couple thousand years. It didn't disappear until about the time of the judges in uh, the Bible. So around 1200 B.C., uh, the Hurrian culture finally disappears from history. So for at least 2,000 years, the Hurrians occupied northern Mesopotamia, and they were in contact with uh, the Akkadians and the, uh, the Amorites and the Hittites who occupied Turkey. And the Hittites preserved their religious texts. So the Bucciolatis were able to connect the ritual practices at ancient Urkesh, thanks to these texts preserved by the Hittites for like 2,000 years later. A scholar in the mid-1960s, even before Urkesh was discovered by the Bucciolatis, studied the linguistics of the Hurrians. He became an expert in the Hurrian language and determined that contrary to the assumption of most historians that civilization began in what is now southeast Iraq with the Sumerians and spread out from there, that the word abzu in Sumerian which is where we get the word abyss, actually was uh, derived from the Hurrian word, abi. And so the abyss, the abzu, the netherworld, Tartarus, essentially began the whole concept of, of this netherworld domain where you had to summon the gods from the underworld by going into a pit and sacrificing and then raising them up and then sending them back and then having to seal off the magic circle through which they appeared. That goes back to the ancient Hurrians, and the oldest occurrence of this, uh, again, documented at this city in northern Syria, probably as far back as 3500 B.C. Derek P. Gilbert is with us. His latest is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. So 
disciples of Saturn or worshippers of Saturn, what kind of practices did they involve themselves? I mean, was there human sacrifice? Was there child sacrifice? Well, that is a common thread among the more recent uh, identities worn by this uh, this entity, Saturn, Baalhamon of the Phoenicians, and Kronos of the Greeks. It's established that all of them welcomed child sacrifice, and in the book I explain why I identify Molech with this entity as well. And Molech in the Bible was infamous for requiring that his followers offer their children in fire, burn them alive. But this practice is known and documented at Phoenician sites um, as late as the, the classical era. So in the centuries leading up to the, the Christian era and even into the early Christian era, the Phoenicians were still taking part in this. The most well-known of the, uh, the rites of Saturn, of course, is Saturnalia, which was every year in Rome between December 17th and the 24th. But Saturn, by the time of the Romans, even though he was still accepting child sacrifice, his reputation had been rehabilitated somewhat from his uh, earlier iterations. And the Temple of Saturn in Rome was, uh, because he had, it was believed by the Romans that after Jupiter had deposed him and cast him down to Tartarus that he escaped, he fled to Italy where he uh, set up shop as a farmer and ruled over a golden age where life was wonderful. And so the Temple of Saturn in Rome was where the Roman government kept its treasury, which meant its, its hoard of gold. But interestingly, when the Temple of Jupiter was being built in Rome when it was under construction around 526 BC, the last king of Rome, before it became the Roman Republic, decided that the Temple of Saturn would be moved to the bottom of a particular hill, which had been called Mons Saturnus, the Mount of Saturn, and replaced with this new temple of their chief god, Jupiter, the storm god. And in the book, I explain how that sequence of events actually led to the United States Capitol being named the Capitol. Ah, we're just heading into a break here in a couple of minutes. But based on my limited knowledge of the Roman worship of Saturn and Saturnalia, you mentioned that they rehabilitated Saturn's image because my knowledge, you know, shallow as it is, is that that. Uh, Saturnalia was a time where where slaves would sit down with masters. They would share a drink. Uh, it was you know there was maybe some gambling going on, but certainly no mention of you know human sacrifices. Was so? What, no, I mean, was it? Go ahead. Why am I am I wrong here? Or? No, no, you're you're correct. The role, it was in fact the, the most popular of the annual uh, festivals in Rome. And uh, again, this this is why. Saturn's, like I say, Saturn's reputation, his uh, image had been sort of rehabilitated. He certainly was considered more favorable in Rome than Kronos was considered to the Greeks. But, uh, yeah, it was a time where, where the societal norms were, were overturned. Uh, slaves were served by their masters and people played practical jokes on one another. Um, but there was an earlier Greek festival that did the same thing called the Cronia. And it's not surprising because, again, this is the same entity under a different name. And, in fact, one scholar whose uh, field of expertise is Greek religion traces this back to an older Hittite text to the Hurrian god Kumarbi. And so it appears that what we call the Saturnalia today actually originated with the old Hurrian god Kumarbi hundreds of years, perhaps even more than a thousand years before the first documented uh, celebration of the Saturnalia in Rome. So how do we square Saturn with, you sort of have gotten into this a little bit, but square Saturn with Lucifer? 
in order to do that, don't you have to get Saturn back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve? Yes. Um, but that's the interesting thing about the uh, passage in Isaiah 14 from which we get the word Lucifer, which actually was just a translation into Latin um, by Jerome. When he translated the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, he translated the, the Hebrew Helel ben Shakar, which means light bringer, son of dawn, into uh, using the Latin words lux for light and ferris for carry. And we have anglicized it into Lucifer, assuming that it was a proper name. It's not really a proper name. Um, it's it's sort of a, an, an odd transliteration of the uh, the Latin. But when you read Isaiah chapter 14 and the parallel chapter in Ezekiel 28, which scholars agree describes the same event, there's nothing in either of those chapters that mentions the temptation of Adam and Eve as the reason for that particular rebel being cast out of Eden. And I think the, we, we've been taught that it's uh, that it must refer to satan because that's the only enemy that most christians have been taught to believe is actually real but when you read the old testament more carefully and this is what sharon and i've been trying to do the last five and six years is is take the bible at, at face value when god refers to the gods of egypt for example in exodus 12 12 and says he's going to execute judgments on them the night of the uh, the passover who is he talking about if they're just imaginary? In Psalm 82, when he takes his uh, position in the midst of the divine council and says, uh, you are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High, but like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Who is he talking about? Most Bible teachers will say, well, but he's talking about the judges of Israel. But that disregards the actual Hebrew meaning of the words sons of God, b'nei ha-elohim, that never refers to humans. So, We've got to consider the possibility that maybe another rebel is in view, and I could. It would take more time to go into some depth here on Isaiah 14 uh, and Ezekiel 28, but I think the bottom line is this: when you look at Isaiah 14 in the context of the other references there to the Rephaim, the shades in English, who are stirred up to greet this rebel when he is cast down to Sheol, uh, and uh, a reference in Isaiah 14:19 about uh, being cast away from his grave like a loathed branch. And we showed in a previous book that that word translated branch, assuming that it's based on the Hebrew word, netzer, is actually based on an Egyptian loan word that was used to describe the god Osiris, the god of the dead, uh-huh. who's being mm-hmm. cast out because you are like a loathed dead god. Um, Satan still was roaming the earth, at least through the first century. We see in the Old Testament, in the time of Job, that God is in the heavenly courtroom of, of, of uh, the, the Most High. Hey, uh, look, at, look at this dude Job here. I think I can tempt him to uh, curse your name. And uh, in Zechariah chapter 4, Satan is accusing the high priest of Israel in the days of Zechariah and Zerubbabel, uh, a high priest named Joshua. So he was not confined to the netherworld like this entity who is described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. So I suggest that this is the uh, leader of the rebellion that we read about, in those first four verses of Genesis chapter 6, expanded on in the early chapters of the book of First Enoch, the Watchers, the chief of the Watchers, Shemiyaza. And uh, what I think is really intriguing about this is that when you read Ezekiel 28 closely, and uh, you read about how every precious stone was his covering, those are the same stones that were um, described when God gave the instructions to Moses for building the, uh, uh, the ephod of the high priest. 
So this entity, I argue Shemiyaza, or Saturn to the later Romans, may have been the high priest in Eden before he decided to come down to Earth and uh, uh, destroy what God had created by first uh, contaminating the human bloodline and creating a new hybrid race to take over the Earth, and secondly, teaching us forbidden knowledge, things we weren't supposed to know. So, um, Shemiyaza, or Saturn, and the other uh, fallen angels that uh, gather at Mount Hermon, um, you know, to begin their rebellion. You say that there is a connection, an interesting connection between between Mount Hermon and the Mount of Olives, uh, where, well, explain what it, that connection is, the significance uh, also of Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives. Well, Mount Hermon was where this rebellion took place, and it was also known to the Canaanites around ancient Israel that that was the mountain where their creator god, El, who is just another identity worn by this, by this uh, old rebel, Shemiyaza, Saturn. El, that was his uh, mount of assembly. That's where he held court with his uh, consort, Asherah. At the base of the mountain is um, the Grotto of Pan, which is a cave. It used to be the source of the Jordan River, but it was believed in ancient times to be the literal entrance to the netherworld. You would sacrifice uh, an animal, and there are documented uh, memorials to human sacrifice on Mount Hermon. Uh, the sacrifice would be thrown into the waters in the grotto, and if the sacrifice sank, it was accepted by the god. On Mount, the Mount of Olives, in the time of Solomon, you know, Solomon was the one who constructed the, uh, the Temple of Yahweh, the Temple of God, on the, the uh, Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount today. Mount of Olives is uh, just across the Kidron Valley, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look down onto the Temple Mount. When God directed David and Solomon to build the temple, he didn't pick the highest hill in Jerusalem. So Solomon, through one of his wives, probably his Ammonite wife, was uh, cajoled or coerced into building a temple or a high place for the God described in the Bible as the abomination of the Ammonites, Nocom. Milcom is just a Semitic word that means king. A scholar has shown that Milcom is just actually El by a different name. The Hebrews called him Molech. All right? So because Solomon essentially put a temple to Molech on the summit of the Mount of Olives, looking down on the temple of God, they called the Mount of Olives the temple of corruption, the temple of... But uh, it's the, the definite article, the, is in there, temple of the corruption, but the word also means destroyer. Mount of the destroyer is, uh, I think, a better translation of what the the, uh, the priests uh, following the time of Solomon referred to the Mount of Olives, because you've got this temple to this entity, Shemiyaza El Molech Saturn, looking down on the temple of God. But just like the, uh, Mount Hermon, which was, the, uh, which was believed to be the mountain sacred to El, with the Grotto of Pan at the base, the literal entrance to the netherworld, the Mount of Olives, with this temple on top, uh, when you go down into the Kidron Valley below and uh, follow that around to the south, it connects to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is where the Tophet was uh, constructed. The Tophet was the place where people would go and burn their children as an offering to Molech. So I think that was the connection where you had... Uh, and because uh, because of that, the Valley of Hinnom later was called Gehenna by the Hebrews in the time of uh, Jesus and the apostles and served as a symbol 
or the netherworld, a place of uh, eternal torment and punishment. But uh, I think significantly, Jesus recognized the significance of the Mount of Olives and this connection to this entity, this old rebel, because the last week of Jesus' life was split between the Temple Mount, teaching in the Temple in Jerusalem, and then on the Mount of Olives. He was betrayed at the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He was crucified on the Mount of Olives. He was put into a tomb on the Mount of Olives. According to 1 Peter 3, he descended into the abyss and proclaimed victory over these entities that Peter and Jude both say are, are wrote are in chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment. He ascended again, was uh, resurrected on the Mount of Olives, and uh, according to the Gospel of Luke, when he was uh, trans. Uh, trans- ported up into heaven, he left this earth from the Mount of Olives, and according to Zechariah chapter 14, when he returns, it will be on the Mount of Olives. So uh, I think there's some significance there. There's a, plenty of clues in the Bible that this location is very, very important. But uh, likewise, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus climbed a very high mountain with his uh, three most prominent uh, disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, was at Caesarea Philippi, which is where the Grotto of Pan is located, the gates of hell that he referred to will not prevail against his church. Oh, and they're right over here, this big cave. And then he and his uh, three disciples climbed Mount Hermon, and he was transformed into a being of light. It was essentially sending a flare into the spirit realm, declaring his divinity and challenging these uh, fallen angels and demons to do something about it. Well, when he when when Jesus says, "I will build my church upon this rock," and and many people assumed that 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 was he was referring to Peter, um, but was he in fact referring to the entrance to that netherworld? In other words, I will build my church on top of, you know, these false gods. Well, is that what he was yes, referring I, to as the rock? He, he, he was standing in front of a 9,200-foot mountain. It is the tallest mountain in the Levant, and it was known as the, uh, the Mount of Assembly for El, the creator god of the Canaanites, where uh, he and his 70 sons, representing the gods of all of the nations, um, would meet to decree and determine the fates of the, uh, the world. Jesus climbed that mountain and basically was transformed. Ezekiel and Elijah were there, and... Uh, I think that was sending a message to the spirit realm, because when you read the gospel accounts, that it was from there, after they came down the mountain, Jesus sent his 72, or 70, depending on your translation, disciples ahead of him into Galilee. That's a significant number. In the ancient Near East, that represented the complete set, or all of them. In other words, what Jesus was saying is like, look, I know I just came off the mountain where El and his 70 sons, representing all of the gods of the nations, held court, but my 70 will someday replace your 70. And then from there, Jesus went to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission and again, split the last week of his life between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Again, places significant to this rebel, uh, El Shemiyaza, Saturn, who I believe is still looking forward to that day when he gets out, because he will get out of the abyss, the Bible tells us this, uh, but thinks that when that happens, somehow he is going to uh, assume what he believes is his rightful place as the king of creation in the heavens. All right. And uh, I guess the countdown to the second coming of Saturn has begun. It happened on the winter solstice, December 21, 2020, marking the official beginning of the age of Aquarius. And uh, there are some powerful people who believe that this is uh, the beginning of a new golden age 
Uh, not so. Derek Gilbert will explain when we come back. Stay with us. C60 Evo Organic Oil Elixirs and Facial Serum Sets. And uh, here with a, uh, a tip on how to get a proper night's rest is the co-founder and chief scientist of C60 Evo, Chris Burroughs. Chris, welcome back. How are you? Richard, thank you so much for having me. One of the tips for getting a good night's sleep is related to naps. And the reality is if you're foregoing naps, you probably shouldn't. The data is really clear. You should be taking naps. Just a couple things that you need to be mindful of when you take a nap. Uh, One of them is don't take naps after four right? Because that can tend to interrupt your circadian rhythm. And that's the rhythm that gives your sleep cycle in tune with the rising and falling of the sun. So taking a nap after four can interrupt that and can have a negative impact on your sleep. And then the next thing is keep your nap. Optimal time is about 20 minutes. If so, if you're about to take a nap and maybe you're really tired, one, don't do it after four. And two, make sure you set that alarm clock. Maybe you give yourself 30 minutes, but we've all had the experience of taking a nap and waking up like 10 times groggier than when than we were when we went to sleep. Uh, so keep those naps short and keep them before four. I like to share these kind of sleep ideas with people because one, I love to deliver value. Uh, and two, it's actually our most consistent testimonial with our product, C60 Evo, is people take it in the morning, they report mental focus and energy during the day, and then better sleep that night. C60 Evo products deliver noticeable benefits to people and pets around the world. Immunity boost, deeper sleep, just like Chris said, more energy, mental balance, flexibility, and longevity. And don't forget, visit the website, that's c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serret. Use the code EVRS, EVRS at checkout and you save an extra 10%. Chris, we'll talk again next week. Thank you. Fasten your seatbelts. Place your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave behind everything you think you know. Think you know. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Derek P. Gilbert from Skywatch TV, the second coming of Saturn, the Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. So, um, as you indicate in the book, the uh, this Great Conjunction that happened in the winter solstice of 2020, this alignment of Saturn and Jupiter, uh, does that then begin this countdown clock to the um, to uh, Saturn? escaping from uh, uh, Tarsus and and the the beginning of this, well, what certain people believe is the beginning of a new golden age ruled over by Saturn? Well, the the abyss isn't going to open up until God gives us permission for that, so I don't want to stoke any fear, but I do believe that there are people looking to the poem by the, the Roman poet Virgil, who wrote uh, his his fourth eclogue around 40 B.C., just after the assassination of Julius Caesar. They, they look at this as prophecy. And, and uh, this was written probably as a, a political... Uh, um, uh, how can I say this? Uh, he, he was trying to curry favor with powerful people in Rome. When you're, you're a poet back in the day, you needed sponsors. And so there was a prominent politician by the name of Gaius Asinius Polio, who was about to become the highest-ranking elected official in Rome at that time. But uh, there was a belief among the Romans, which they inherited from the Greeks, that there had been four ages of mankind, and uh, this began with the Golden Age when 
Saturn or Kronos ruled in the pre-flood era where heroes co-mingled with men and uh, heroes co-mingled with gods, that is. Um, that was followed by a Bronze Age where, or a Silver Age where things weren't quite as good and then a Bronze Age which was violent and bloody and, uh, and awful. And then uh, the Iron Age was the, the age in which we currently live. And that uh, this, this polio who he was trying to suck up to would... Uh, bring in at this new golden age and I'll read just the relevant bit of uh, Virgil's poem here now the last age by Kume's Sibyl sung has come and gone and the majestic role of circling centuries begins anew justice returns returns old Saturn's reign with a new breed of men sent down from heaven and again this is supposed to kick off a new golden age well not coincidentally this also tracks with the four uh Medals that were in the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of Babylon, who dreamt of a statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a torso of bronze and legs of iron and then toes iron mixed with clay. And uh, there's a prophetic interpretation that the prophet Daniel gives him there. But uh, interesting that the pagans used the same metals and in the same order to describe the ages of humanity. But when Saturn and Jupiter met, in the night sky last winter solstice at zero degrees of Aquarius. According to New Agers, astrologers, and some occultists, this signaled the full entry into the age of Aquarius, and the constellation Aquarius is ruled by Saturn. Astrologers call this the great mutation, and this great mutation signals a, a transformation to a new era where power is decentralized and we are much less materialistic. <laughs> you will own nothing and you will be happy. Where have we heard that before? Exactly. And it was one month to the day after that uh, conjunction, Richard, that the World Economic Forum announced its official plans for the Great Reset. I think that's what we're looking at here. Um, and, I, the, and I think that's why we're seeing the, uh, the constant stoking of fear connected to the, uh, the ongoing COVID pandemic. And when that begins to wane when people finally get sick of it and say, look, we can read and we understand that this is uh, not the threat that we thought it was when it first broke out, then we'll be back to uh, being hammered with uh, climate change because the exactly. goal is to get us to give up control to a central government. <laughs> they call it decentralized, but it's not. Uh, how do you connect Saturn to the United States Capitol? Well, just as in Rome, where the temple of Saturn was pushed off of Mons Saturnus and replaced by the, uh, the temple of Jupiter, symbolizing his, uh, his Saturn being deposed by Jupiter and replaced as the king of the Pantheon. Um, in 1799, when the United States was laying out its official capital city, and that's capital with an A-L on the end, um, the architect, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, wanted to call the building where Congress met, Congress House, not a very creative name, but that's what Lundfont wanted to call it. Because it turns out, and I always thought we called the United States Capitol the Capitol because that's what you call the place where your government meets. It's the Capitol. That's just what you call right. it. But in 1799, that wasn't, the, that wasn't true. There was only one building on Earth where a legislative body met in a Capitol, and that was Williamsburg, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's home state. Jefferson insisted that it be called the Capitol because that's the name of the temple of Jupiter in ancient Rome, the Capitolium. So named ah. because when they were digging the foundation for the Capitol, they found a severed head, which apparently to the uh, 
king of Rome, the last king, uh, Tarquin, uh, Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud, uh, he was an Etruscan, and apparently for Etruscans, you used a severed head when you wanted to communicate with the dead. That was how they uh, conducted their augury. So that was taken as a good sign, and so they decided to rename the hill from the Mount of Saturn, Mons Saturnus, to uh, the Capitolium. And they named the Temple of Jupiter the Capitolium, the Capitoline Hill uh, on, on, on which the Capitolium was built. And that's why Jefferson wanted the United States Capitol named the Capitol, not because he wanted to worship Jupiter, but because he wanted, I think, to evoke the image of Republican Rome. What's interesting, though, is that um, Jupiter being equated to Zeus, both storm gods, both kings of their respective pantheons. They were also equated to Baal and the Canaanite pantheon, likewise storm god, king of the pantheon. Two different places in the New Testament. In Matthew 12, uh, Jesus equates Baal with Satan, and in Revelation 2, where Jesus is dictating his uh, letter to the church Pergamum, he equates Zeus with Satan. So in effect, what Jefferson did, probably unintentionally, was named the United States legislative headquarters for the temple of Satan in ancient Rome. So I'm a little confused because uh, Zeus, as you point out, you know, the, the throne of Zeus uh, is also equated as Satan's throne. So how could Zeus uh, and, and um, uh, Saturn both be Satan? I argue in the book, and I'll try to be brief so we can allow more time for questions, uh, but uh, that the art inside the Capitol the depiction of George Washington inside the Capitol Dome as uh, uh, in the painting called The Apotheosis of Washington, he actually represents Saturn ascending from the netherworld to take what he thinks is his rightful place among the gods and rule over the Golden Age, which are depicted by the scenes of commerce and agriculture and uh, industry uh, represented around the outside of the painting called The Apotheosis of Washington. It's, it's not well known, but um, when Washington died, they had, uh, the, the uh, architects had uh, gotten permission from Martha Washington to put Washington's body on permanent display in a chamber in the crypt, which is the main floor of the Capitol. And there was to have been a hole in the rotunda floor. There was for a while, um, through which viewers in the rotunda, visitors to the rotunda could look down and see Washington. You'd have the portal there in the floor through which Washington's spirit would ascend through the oculus, the eye, to become... Uh, the the god and uh, again I go into the symbolism in the painting. Um, it turns out Washington was never uh, was never brought to the Capitol. It, the whole plan was interrupted by the War of eighteen twelve, and then uh, Martha passed away, and Washington's descendants said, "No, no, we're going to keep him here in Mount Vernon." But uh, even the way he's depicted on the ceiling there with the purple cloth representing kingship, but the fact that his legs are wrapped in the cloth is similar to the way the statue of the idol of Saturn had his legs wrapped in wool in the temple of Saturn in Rome, except during the Saturnalia. So I, I think the imagery is suggestive of Saturn rising from the netherworld, from the, the, uh, the crypt through the oculus to the, uh, his uh, position in the sky depicted in the apotheosis of Washington. The fact that Washington wasn't buried there, did that forestall the second coming of Saturn in some way? <laughs> no, no. Uh, this will all happen when God allows it to happen. Um, 
as the ones who are confined to the abyss, we see in Revelation chapter 9, there are things that get out of the abyss. An angel is given a key to the bottomless pit, and these things come out, and they've got five months to torment humans without the seal of God on their foreheads. This mirrors the 150 days that the Ark of Noah was on the waters, as mentioned in Genesis 7 and Genesis 8, 150 days in a 30-day lunar calendar, that's exactly five months. These entities who had created these hybrid children uh, were forced to watch from their confinement in Tartarus, the abyss, for five months while their children were being destroyed in the flood above. At the end, in, uh, during the Great Tribulation period, they will have five months to get revenge on those who've not been sealed by God. Ah, you also link the uh, capital, uh, the events of the capital um, uh, on January 6, 2020, to the return of Saturn. I have to give credit to my wife, Sharon, on this one. She spotted the symbolism. January 6th is a day that is um, commemorated in the Christian Church as Epiphany. Uh, it's called Theophany in the Eastern Orthodox Churches. It's the day that uh, celebrates the revelation of the divinity of Christ. So here we've got this event that took place in what many of our prominent politicians called our temple of democracy, or the most sacred space in our republic. People like Chuck Schumer and Amy Klobuchar, Nancy Pelosi, Dick Durbin, uh, Representative Liz Cheney, all and many, many political pundits. The sacred space has been desecrated just uh, this past week. President Biden referred to the Capitol as uh, America's temple of democracy, as he uh, eulogized uh, former Senator Bob Dole. So you've got this idea that's been implanted in our heads that somehow the United States Capitol is sacred space. And, and, and then on Theophany or Epiphany, the day we acknowledge and recognize, celebrate the recognition of the divinity of Christ by the three wise men, the QAnon shaman wearing the buffalo hat leads a rebellion and a desecration. And in the book and in my previous book, Last Clash of the Titans, I go into some detail on the significance of bison or buffalo imagery among the old gods of Mesopotamia. You looked at an inscription from ancient Sumer, you could tell who the gods were by looking for the guys wearing the hats with the buffalo horns on it. Even the Remarkable. name Kronos, the king of the Titans, comes from a Semitic word meaning horns. Kronos is essentially the horned one. That's who we're dealing with here. I think this was a nudge-nudge-wink-wink symbol or signal from the uh, fallen realm that, uh, hey, we're coming back. The celebration of Christmas during what is the ancient uh, celebration of Saturnalia, is it then, is it, is it unwise or, or uh, unchristian then to, to celebrate Christmas during Saturnalia? Well, no, because uh, Saturnalia ends on the 24th, and the, the way the early church arrived at December 25th was actually uh, pretty simple. It's not biblical. I mean, as a Christian, I recognize that there's nothing in the Bible that says we need to celebrate Christmas, but it is the one time a year we can mention the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, in public without being, uh, you know, shamed for it. The early church, in the, uh, as early as the third century, trying to figure out when the birth of Jesus had taken place, there was a, an old tradition among the Jews that famous... Uh, 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 prophets would die on the same day that they were conceived. And so they tried to calculate the date of the crucifixion. They got it wrong because uh, they came up with the date March 25th of the year 29 AD. But that was that was it, that simple. You take March 25th, you add nine months, and you get December 25th. So that's all there was to it. No Christian until about the 12th century thought there was anything pagan about the celebration of Christmas. Ah, all right. That's good to know. Did the Hurrians still exist today, maybe as a diaspora? 
There are some who suggest they might, uh, their descendants might be the Armenians or perhaps the Kurds, uh, but it's, it's impossible to know that new research into uh, tracing DNA may uh, answer that question someday. Do you believe the Hindu gods are the same as these ancient gods, perhaps just under a different name? Yes, I haven't done enough study on the Hindu gods to make those connections yet, but there are some similarities. Um, the king of their gods, Indra, is likewise a storm god. Uh, how do we get a copy of The Second Coming of Saturn, Derek? It's available through Amazon or at uh, any major bookstore, and uh, can also be obtained through the Skywatch TV store, which is at skywatchtvstore.com. It uh, is available now in paperback, and the Kindle version will be released at Amazon on January 1st. Fantastic. The Second Coming of Saturn, the Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. Any any uh, clues in the Bible as to, uh, aside from this Great Conjunction, any other signs as to when the Second Coming of Saturn will, will happen? Well, we've been trying to figure that out because we know that they only get five months at the end, but there's nothing explicit in Revelation 9 that says what happens to them when it's when that five months is over or when that five-month period ends. But uh, the good news is we've got a long way to go before we get to uh, Revelation 9 and the abyss opening up. But uh, I think we're closer to that uh, period now than we were um, even, say, 10 years ago. So no date setting. Derek, always a delight. Thank you so much for hanging out the last hour. Thank you, Richard. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.